Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. U.S. forces give a nod. For your country Bombs and trenches all in rows Bombs and threats still ask for more Hello, listeners. You're listening to Uprise Radio on 3CR. It's Wednesday, the 1st of July. Hello, James. How are you? I am good, Jackson. Um, Still coming to terms with the fact that we're moving again into a lockdown stage. Mm. I think um, it's going to be very difficult to, I think, move people back into a mindset of being in lockdown. And I think it's very difficult uh, looking at locking down places by postcode. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what to make of that, but certainly there weren't any calls for police-style um, barricades at suburbs when the, um, you know, when the when the disease was quarantined around Turak and um, wealthy suburbs. So, yeah, yeah. it's very interesting it is. It's a real, it's a stark difference. I remember when the, when the pandemic first arrived on our shores, I remember language from Morrison at the time saying, you know, certain suburbs will have one experience while other suburbs will have another. And I felt a little uncomfortable by that, you know, preempting of different treatments for different people. But it is stark that, you know, when the, when the pandemic arrived, it really was brought in by a kind of mobile elites, you know, people returning from overseas, coming back from cruise ships and, you know, coming back from ski holidays in Aspen. And they were really not, people weren't limited in, in, in what they could do and where they could move and kind of got away with things. And now that we see the pandemic has, you know, reached its claws into, you know, people working security at the uh, hotspot hotels in the city uh, and people forced back onto the front lines of work, you know, the, the suburbs that have been locked down really are around, you know, Melbourne's working class in the, you know, in the inner and outer north. Um, the postcodes, yeah, they're not in Brighton and Turak, you know, where the um, pandemic first was really hitting hard, around, you know, around, um, I think it was Turak High or Turak, you know, primary was the first school to be hit. And we didn't see the same type of response. And maybe that's, you know, the government learning. I'm not suggesting that we don't need a strong response. Um, but yeah, it is. It, it, it does seem like a little bit of a double standard, uh, and you know the rush to get the economy back open. Uh, look where we are. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I'm in country Victoria at the moment, and I think in around this area, there's uh, been next to no cases. Um, I think there's been one case in the 
um, greater Bendigo region, which covers a vast amount of land and people. So I think, you know, it's quite a different sort of um, attitude, I think, towards the, um, not necessarily pandemic. I mean, I think people are still um, concerned and cautious and those kind of things. But, uh, you know, when you're living in an area where you have great um, expansive outdoor areas, um, it's much less densely populated. Um, people around the country areas were certainly, um, you know, hoping and that they were not um, treated the same way, I guess, as a city, that perhaps they did the same restrictions didn't necessarily need to apply um, out in country areas. So, you know, I think from that perspective, I can understand, um, you know, different rules perhaps for people in you know, country areas. But, yeah, postcodes within the city, I'm not sure about that. And I think it just seems like it will be very hard to um, police as well. And, you know, the limitations and restrictions going back to what they were before um, and saying that they're going to have um, sort of booze bus style police areas um, to check people coming in and out of suburbs. Um, yeah, I think that for a lot of people in the areas that we're talking about as well, they are people of colour, um, you know, lots of people who have come from uh, overseas, from countries where perhaps they've had violence from the state, um, you know, poor dealings with the police in the past as well. So that kind of having to be forced to have that kind of interaction again with police just to come to and from their home, I think will be a, you know, stressful and perhaps traumatising process for a lot of people as well. Yeah, and we, you know, we know right now uh, it's very much in the headlines how the racist tendencies of police organisations all across the world, here in Australia particularly, you know, we've been seeing what's happened in the US and the language, you know, how, how are they going to decide who is going about their business correctly and who isn't, you know, it's very broad, that, you know, that even the four reasons, you know, you can leave for care or caregiving, well, that could be emotional support to a friend, you know, you can leave for education, you can leave for work, you can leave to buy essential goods, you know, how are the police going to make decisions about who is doing the right and wrong thing? We know, you know, by looking at history and looking at experience, the police often, they, 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 you know, I don't think you can put it any other way. They do racially profile, you know, they do look at certain people and say, Oh, I'm not really sure whether you have a reason to be here, you know, because you're not, you know, you don't look the same as me or, you know, like I just think that this is, this is, this is a reality that, that people of colour deal with. And, you know, not just people of colour, but also people who look a bit different, whether they have a disability or might be trans or, you know, anybody who doesn't fit the, you know, regular Aussie idea of the police, which is pretty narrow, I think is going to be a target. You know, we've seen that through, throughout history and I think that's really worrying. Um, it, it puts people in who, not just uh, the sort of, you know, types of people that you mentioned just then, but, you know, people that just live life a bit differently as well. And uh, it meant that, um, you know, people are really having to conform to a homogenised way of living. Um, and it doesn't cater for people that want to be outside of that a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, today on the show, we are going to, we're going to be talking to Clinton Fernandez and Shirley Winton uh, about an upcoming forum on July 4th, which is, of course, is um, American Independence Day. And the topic of the forum is looking at, you know, should Australia have an independent foreign policy from the USA? 
And I think that's going to be a really interesting chat that both uh, guests that we've had on the show before, um, I can't remember, either on Uprise Radio or um, previously on our breakfast show. Mm. Uh, and yeah, they both have got a lot of interesting things to say about what Australia's military uh, presence should look like and an uh, independent foreign policy and something that is a defence policy rather than something that is looking for imperialism and attack sort of strategies. Yeah. So the forum is organised by Spirit of Eureka, which is kind of a working committee and you know, a group of interested people that was formed in 2004 to kind of reflect on the success of the Eureka Stockade and reflect the voice of Australia's ordinary people and that ongoing struggle present day uh, for justice, democracy and sovereignty for Australia. Uh, and it's interesting that they did choose Independence Day. I want to talk to Shirley about that. Shirley is actually the convener of the Spirit of Eureka Committee. So it's great to have her here. And yeah, Professor Clinton Fernandez, we have had him on before after his book, uh, An Island Off, A Small Island Off the Coast of Asia, An Island Off the Coast of Asia was released. And uh, he's one of the forum's key speakers. He's also an expert in the future operational environment for Australia's military. So it's going to be very interesting to pick his brain. But I think it's just good to reflect on, you know, some recent events that make this quite timely as well. You know, we've seen a continuation recently of the long-standing policy of Australia to be the USA's southern sheriff, you know, a badge proudly worn by Labor and Liberal Prime Ministers back to the days of Curtin after World War II. And this special relationship, uh, it's not balanced. You know, the ANZUS Treaty does not guarantee US support in the event of a war, but Australians have followed the USA into its imperial adventures the world over from Korea to Vietnam, First Gulf War, never-ending wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And last month, Maurice Payne, Australia's foreign minister, appeared to do the spade work of her US counterparts in calling for an independent inquiry, ostensibly to lay the blame at China's feet for the global pandemic. And certainly that's how it was reported in the media. You know, Payne had spoken to Mike Pompeo, a few days before she made the announcement calling for an inquiry and Pompeo came out and initially promised enormous evidence that would link China's Wuhan lab to look to the outbreak of COVID-19. And none of this evidence materialised and he needed to backtrack. But Morrison was using a lot of Trump's language about China, you know, talking about dangerous globalism and, you know, you know, kind of beating the kind of unilateral and nationalist drum. And it's good to remember that Australia's alliance with the US is bigger than just a strategic alliance. You know, we support the USA diplomatically, like in this instance here. We, we're one of the few countries not to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, even though it was an Australian organisation that, uh, that, that brought that treaty to the, to the UN, you know, in ICANN. And, you know, Australia and the US... nuclear weapons. Sorry, say it again. And I say, yeah, and we, the fact that we don't have nuclear weapons shows what the bond is in the US that... It's not protecting our own interests, it's protecting US interests. Exactly right. You know, we're also one of only five countries not to sign the uh, Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, along with the USA, Canada, you know, and you can see why uh, these countries are so reticent to sign those uh, uh, declarations. But uh, yeah, it, it is, it's good to reflect on these things. But um, yeah, let's get um, Shirley and Clint into the conversation and have a chat about this upcoming forum. I think, um, yeah, obviously we'll mention details of the forum, but the book that Clinton wrote, Island Off the Coast of Asia, is a really, really great book that explains a lot of and goes into detail about Australian foreign policy, uh, particularly in the Pacific region, looking at things like East Timor, um, Australia's imperialist role. Yeah, so I would certainly um, recommend, again, for people to check that out. 
So you're listening to 3CR. This is Uprise Radio with Jackson and James. And we're joined now by Shirley Winson from Spirit of Eureka and also Professor Clinton Fernandez. They've got an upcoming forum on July 4th, American Independence Day. It's on at four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Saturday, July 4th this year. So just this coming Saturday. Uh, It's on Zoom, obviously, in the time of COVID. And the topic of the forum is, does Australia need independence from the USA? And considering your strategic understanding, Clinton, I might start with you. You know, should Mm -hmm. Australia reconsider uh, the ANZUS Alliance and our relationship with the USA? Hi, thanks for having me on your show. I think it's definitely a good time to think very carefully about the kind of defense plan uh, and military operations we might be getting into, uh, regardless of how one feels about the ANZUS Treaty. Uh, And I'm I'm saying this in light of Prime Minister Morrison's announcement uh, sometime this week, it's, it's been reported in the papers today, um, that they're going to buy a whole range of new standoff missiles. Um, and this points to the possibility of uh, high-intensity conflict um, in the South China Sea and or the Korean Peninsula. Uh, so the era of guerrilla wars against adversaries that did not have air power is now finished. Uh, we are now entering the era of uh, major conflict, and that's what the, the major acquisitions that the Prime Minister uh, announces this week have to do with. Now, the reason we need to think about the alliance and how we go to war is that at the moment, um, Parliament has no role in deciding whether we go to war or not. Uh, the The decision is entirely within the executive branch. It's uh, There's just no call for a vote, um, and uh, a war uh, would therefore be committed uh, uh, the troops would have to be committed to uh, a major conflict without parliamentary involvement. And that should concern anybody, regardless of how they feel about the alliance. Clinton, what do you think? I mean, we already have so many US bases on Australian soil. We have, you know, things like Talisman Sabre, joint military exercises, you know, obviously uh-huh. Pine Gap and all of these kind of things that are yeah. so entrenched within the Australian-US alliance. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that makes it much more than things like, you know, say New Zealand and other countries that have a, a softer kind of alliance in sense of sharing military strategy and things like that. Mm-hmm. How would it look to actually be able to move back from that? You know, what would happen to things like the US bases and, um, you know, the shared information around Pine Gap, for instance? Yes. Well, I look, the, the alliances are not connected uh, you know, the treaty is not connected to Pine Gap. Um, Pine Gap, the joint defense facilities, as well as the Northwest Cape, uh, would exist even if ANZUS did not, because one was not involving the other. Um, we would need, if we were concerned about uh, a military threat, we would need asymmetric weapons. We would need weapons that would allow us to deny another country's ability to interfere with us rather than try and dominate uh, the region by ourselves or in alliance with the United States. In other words, we'd want a defense force that would be for defense rather than for offense. It's pretty frightening, this announcement. Uh, they're saying they're going to increase the 10-year projected spending from $195 billion to $270 billion. They said $195 yes. billion just in uh, 2016. It's now $100 now 270 billion and this is at a time when you know the 60 billion that disappeared to support working australians uh that fell down the back of the couch you know suddenly can't be found to to support everyday australians but apparently we can find 270 billion over the next few years to spend on aggressive weapons i mean surely 
What does this type of militarism, what impact does it have on everyday Australians? I know that the spirit of Eureka is about being a voice for everyday Australians. Why is it important for everyday Australians to think about our strategic security? Well, I mean, there's, there's obviously the two reasons. And um, the first one you mentioned is the enormous cost um, where the $270 billion, I mean, um, last year, the, the, uh, the, what was it, the white paper, or last year, the projection of $200 billion in the budget over the next 10 years um, to what is virtually um, an alliance, you know, supporting and being involved in US war um, and, be, and complying with and being part of the, the US, US um, strategic policies um, and, and, and with countries and, and instigating wars with countries that really um, Australian people have no, no conflict with. Um, they're not countries, no one in the world is actually threatening Australia's security. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect, of course, is that $270 billion, that particularly at a time when we have the, the COVID-19, where, you know, we have that stark contrast of um, money being, um, so much money being invested in, in, um, in the military in US wars on the one hand, and on the other hand, Australia... Three months ago, found itself we didn't have enough uh, face masks or PEPs, and now we have a situation where you know this economic, you know, the Australia was going into economic recession anyway, but COVID nineteen is accelerating it. The government, if it's a really, if we really had a sovereign government that was committed to the interests of Australian people, the priority would be looking after the needs and interests of Australia's people during this COVID health and an economic crisis. But what we're doing, we're spending taxpayers' money, $270 million, on basically supporting US wars, that, which, you know, I think is outrageous. I don't... I, look, we don't um, think that, you know, there shouldn't be any spending on defence. Australia needs to have its own self, sovereign self-defence industries. We do need our own um, self-defence. But it's, it should be not to the offensive wars. Um, so I think that there is going to be a huge, um, um, you know, um, outpourings of disgust with um, the government's expenditure of $270 billion. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. I think one of the things, you know, particularly at the moment, I guess that people would be looking at with the US alliance is uh, the person that sits in the White House there, Donald Trump. And, you know, I think obviously there are things we're talking about, systematic issues that exist within, you know, the structures of US imperialism, as well as looking at Australia's uh, foreign independence as well. But I think there's clearly a particular interest at the moment when, um, you know, somebody who doesn't want to follow, I guess, the traditional outposts, the traditional uh, international relations sort of forms of looking at different countries and institutions the way that Donald Trump does. And, you know, seemingly wants to make irrational decisions and, you know, I have to say, has a tendency towards, you know, the far right and fascist ideology. How do we sit within that kind of framework? I mean, we have our own sort of little um, maestro of that in Scott Morrison, but it's really, you know, I guess for a lot of people, it's a frightening time if we're following, you know, 
in step with what Donald Trump wants to do? Look, uh, fascism is a uh, well thought out ideology, uh, has a, was a very major force a hundred years ago, uh, 90, 90 to hundred years ago. Um, and it had as its core, the market being subordinated to the state. Right, the the corporate system meant that the market would be subordinated to the state, and and you know the workers would kind of uh, be within that, uh, subordinated to both, uh, but the state would be on top of it. Uh, what we are seeing with Trump and the United States is not fascism. The market is not subordinated to the state. In fact, the state continues to be completely dominated by the market, and facilitates its uh, its um, uh, its work. Um, Trump has a very simple ideology. It's just a two-letter word. It's me. Yeah, me, me. Um, and it's it's kind of a narcissistic thing. Uh, it's not. I just don't see any fascism in there. I just see Clinton, uh, though, and so on. Clinton, what about his use of the police to target minority groups and to highlight, you know, so-called undesirables? I mean, just last month he was using symbology or symbols oh. that the Nazi Party used. You know, these these triangles on Facebook to talk about undesirables in society. You know that. The, the nomenclature around anti-fascists being terrorists, I mean, I understand what you're saying in an economic sense. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they're not, um, you know, dominating the market, you know, subordinating the market to the state. But surely his attempts to divide all of his opponents into smaller groups, to target groups within society and to encourage violence from his supporters, which he does at every opportunity, at rallies, talking about Second Amendment rights. I mean, surely mm-hmm. all of that is you know, is, is leaning towards, you know, fascism. Uh, the uh, core of fascism is that it's the last throw of the dice uh, to ward off a revolutionary movement, okay, in which the major uh, holders of industry uh, give up certain powers to the state so they can crush a powerful revolutionary movement that's trying to take power. There is no such movement in the United States. Um, it, yes, he's crawling with various memes and so on, uh, but the repression is nothing like what it was in the 60s. Nothing. Where the police would actually go in and assassinate activists. That's how many of the Black Panther leaders, uh, some of the more moral ones, uh, got killed. There was an entire program called Counterintelligence Pro, uh, COINTEL Pro, Counterintelligence Program, which would actively disrupt the left, uh, um, try and induce people like Martin Luther King Jr. to suicide, um, assassinate people, lock him up. Nothing like that is happening at the moment. So maybe There's the just left just like isn't that. left isn't organised enough yet to prompt fascism. If it were organised and ready to take power, yes, you'd see fascist um, uh, groups. Absolutely. Uh, I just, there's just nothing like that. People um, use language like fascism because they, well, firstly, it, they haven't thought through what the ideology means and, what, and how it historically appears. But they're also distracted by the personality of Trump. Now, that said, he does have a coherent strategy. Uh, you can you can trace some aspects of it. Uh, firstly, he's trying to build uh, 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 an alliance of what might be called the reactionary international, right? So he's trying to uh, bring together, along with the the real ideal, ideologue in the administration, uh, even though he's not formally in it, like Stephen Bannon. Uh, he's trying to unite people like Modi's India, Netanyahu's Israel, uh, Orban's Hungary, um, and various other you know, like-minded uh, members of a, of a kind of a reactionary international around uh, his, uh, his agenda. Um, and, uh, you know, he's also trying to be silent on Russia uh, in order to, uh, to do to China what the Nixon administration did to Russia in the 70s. In other words, unite with China against Russia. This time he's trying to unite with Russia against China. 
Um, so there is, there is a, a, a strategy that is discernible amidst the personal, um, you know, um, tantrums and so on. Uh, but there's nothing like fascism, though. I think, you know, what we are seeing clearly, and we have seen for decades now, is a militarization of the police force uh, in the US. And we've seen elements of that, certainly not in the same way that, you know, seen in the US and that kind of backlash has come with the Black Lives Matter protests in America, but in Australia as well. And I think, you know, the Morrison government, um, you know, is, is certainly interested in this kind of thing. But in Victoria as well, we have Dan Andrews, who's very much a law and order leader. And, you know, the use of these um, so-called non-lethal weaponry, um, you know, we've seen, you know, for decades now, you know, different targets for protesters. I remember at the APEC protests, you know, we had snipers all across the city. We had water tanks doing laps of the protesters, things like that. You know, yes. where does this lead us? You know, I think that, um, I, yeah, I just I wasn't saying that Donald Trump is a fascist, but just that it is has tendencies towards that kind of thing. And, you know, this kind of real state oppression, I guess, is, you know, perhaps a better way to phrase this kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, to really crack down that. on any kind of repression. You know, I think, where is this leading us and how do we, you know, combat that kind of thing? I, I agree with what you're saying in, in a sense. Look, the thing is, I think it's a very valuable discussion to have regarding fascism, uh, simply because um, it's helpful to clarify our terms. Um, and, you know, we can actually shed light on the matter when we disagree and we, and we debate these matters out. Um, as for the militarization of the police, it's a trend that began. Uh, really with the Sydney Olympics uh, in 2000, where what's mm. today called the Special Operations Engineer Regiment uh, was started as the Joint Incident Response Unit, uh, the gyri. Uh, and so a lot of the militarization, the police powers, the, uh, the, the use of the potential use of the Special Air Service Regiment uh, were enhanced back in 2000, um, you know, with the, with the Sydney Olympics. Uh, right now, Yes, it is simply that there is more money, and if you have more money, people want to buy more and more equipment. Uh, the, real, the real issue is on data retention and mass surveillance in order to ward off a potentially radicalizing younger generation on environmental matters. Uh, that's where the secret state uh, is likely to come in, and it would be more a sense of predictive policing and intelligence gathering um, rather than, uh, you know, the sniping and so on. That, that is the most overt version of it. And uh, what is preferred uh, is a more subtle version where you don't actually see uh, the people behind the curtain. Uh, and so the, the mass surveillance, the greater powers, uh, the, the, the use of economic language in national security legislation. Uh, you know, look at Section 90, for example, of the Criminal Code of the Commonwealth, and you'll see that they've added economic matters to national security. Uh, 91E, I think. Uh, and you'll understand that, that really it's about trying to, to control a radicalizing, potentially radicalizing younger generation on environmental matters, because that's uh, a major threat to coal exports. I, I, I agree with um, Clinton. I, I think that fascism is the last resort. And when the ruling class can no longer um, control the people through other things, and, uh, you know, presently, um, the, you know, the um, the you know, the powers that be, okay, are controlling the people and they're using other means, not the open um, coercive force, but through, uh, I think, you know, the, the propaganda, uh, they're more, um, it's much easier to control and monitor people's activities with, your, with the new intelligence um, um, devices and agencies. So it's the fascism, they resort to fascism only when, when 
the, 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 the usual channels not, uh, have been discarded by the people. And to a degree, people, you know, still believe that we can bring about, you know, fundamental change with Parliament. And in some situations, you know, that is true. But, you know, it's also that that's the other side of Parliament is that it is controlling, it is able to control the people uh, or channel the people's dissatisfaction into changing the, changing the, you know, the individuals who make policies, which, you know, we know in Australia for uh, the difference between Labor and Liberal is really not that great. Mm. We're not quite at Rosa Luxemburg's socialism or barbarism yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, that, that, that's like about maybe uh, 70 to 80 years ago. Uh, when we had real fascists in, in right-wing militia groups, you know, uh, Sir Thomas Blamey, who was commissioner of police in Victoria, later on became, um, you know, field marshal. Uh, he headed uh, the Victorian League of National Safety, which had mil which mil militia group with about, you know, 30,000 men in Victoria alone. Uh, and they were backed by uh, colonial sugar refinery, you know, CSR, the flour mills, the Bank of New South Wales. Uh, a lot of these major... Uh, corporations uh, were affiliated with uh, you know, covert, sometimes with militia groups, um, and that's all changed. Um, so we're nowhere, nowhere near that situation, and it's not even likely unless there's a real upsurge in, in you know, some sort of revolutionary organizing, and that's just not there. Mm. So, Shirley, why did you choose the U.S. Independence Day to have this forum discussing Australia's relationship with the U.S.? Okay. Something to do about generational. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, so, 4th of July, people not aware, is um, America's um, Independence Day um, when the American people fought and won um, against the independent, uh, won their independence from the, from the British colonial power in 1776, uh, which is ironically two years um, before uh, Australia was colonised and brutally suppressed the, the first people um, and unleashed enormous massacres. So um, it has quite a significance because today America has become actually the world's most powerful imperialist power um, and striding along, you know, uh, across the globe, um, unleashing wars, uh, wars of aggression, uh, sanctions against people and countries right across the world. Um, and particularly against countries that want bad to its economic and political interests. And so it has, in many ways, like in Australia, it has replaced, the, the, you know, the previous colonial power that we had Britain and before that we had Spain and um, Spain and Portugal and France. Then that was replaced, then Britain was the biggest rising power. Now that Britain has declined, the US over the last, since the Second World War, even probably before, has become the world's biggest imperialist power. Um, so we think that it's um, and that you know it's time for Australia to be independent from, from the US because Australia is um, um, economically, politically and military militarily is dominated by, by the US interests, which had replaced the England uh, the British interests after the after the First World War. So, and it's not just the military and economic and political, it's also the culture. Uh, you know, Australia's, Australian people's culture is crushed by the US um, commercial cultural interests. Um, and 
you know, people are really aware of this. So, um, so since the 1788 brutal occupation, uh, suppression of the first people by the by, by the British, um, the um, Australia has been a, a, a kind of a protectorate or a colonial protectorate of the British. And since then, um, as I said, since Second World War, um, it's been replaced by replaced by America. So, um, and this has it, the, 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 that, that, that those characteristics or features of of US dominance in Australia over Australian politics and the economy was really highlighted during the 1975 um, semi-coup, attempted semi-coup by the CIA and with the assistance of the, of the, of the British. Um, um, and it's a, it's a real testament to, to the fact that Australian people voted in a progressive government which was showing signs of um, striving for more sovereignty and independence economically and also militarily, as we know, with Pine Gap and, and also with um, you know, buying, buying back the farm. And we knew the back, and we all witnessed the backlash by the, by the US and British interests to those, you know, basically very moderate attempts at, at independence. And then, so July the 4th globally is also has important significance because for years now it's been an expression of opposition for US imperialist um, activities in Latin America, in Asia and, and in Europe. Um, like in countries like France and Germany, there are regular protests, yearly protests outside the US consulate. And in Australia and also globally, it probably really took a greater prep, had a greater presence and significance during the Vietnam War. Um, where there were massive demonstrations around the world outside the US continent, um, demanding America to end the, um, to remove itself from Vietnam and end the Vietnam War. And in Australia, we had very big passionate protests outside the US consulate in Canberra, but also here in, in Victoria, and people probably away in Melbourne, the, some of the really big uh, July the 4th protests uh, calling on America and Australia to withdraw all troops from Vietnam, and also um, calling for Australia's independence from the US. And then, you know, since the late 60s, um, there's been a continuing opposition and protest against US bases in Australia. So it has, it has that significance that it's time for Australia to have our own independence, to be sovereign, to, for Australian people to make decisions how we want this country. Um, who we want, the Australian people who want to have con take control of their country, ordinary people take control of their country. A lot of the rhetoric at the moment is about the US as a fading power. You know, that the US, like, you know, Britain at the before World War II, you know, is starting to lose some of its imperial power and is, you know, do, do you think that's an accurate portrayal, Clinton? Do you think the US is a waning power? and and should, uh, and, the, and should that be one of the reasons we are moving away from them? Uh, look, the, the United States militarily remains utterly dominant. No country can match the United States, either in its raw defense budgetary spending or in the high technology um, of its weaponry or its ability to deploy it. Um, the United States is not, 
fading. What we have seen, however, uh, is with a lot of offshoring, uh, there's been austerity and so on, and uh, poor job growth at home. And that's created a disaffected group of people who are, you know, organizing around various demands now. Um, not entirely coherently, it has to be said. Uh, but the the U.S. after the Second World War, its gross domestic product was about 45% of the world's GDP. Today, it's shrunk to maybe about 15, 20%. But American corporations own about 50% of the world's wealth. So although as a, in, in terms of GDP, U.S. is, is, is smaller uh, than it was after the Second World War, uh, for its corporations, which have been able to offshore using uh, various trade agreements, uh, it's it's basically as powerful as it was at the end of the Second World War. Uh, there's no no indication that the United States is declining in, in militarily or economically. Uh, yes, in terms of its social base, uh, we see that it's it's effectively a second or third world country uh, in parts of its infrastructure. Uh, you know, and it does have a horrible healthcare system. Um, things are falling apart in the airports. Uh, you know, uh, railways, highways, and so on. It's not that great. Um, but so the US not, is not. If it's not falling apart, why is it? Mm-hmm. Does it appear to be angling towards a conflict with China? And I think that you know that is the kind of what we hear constantly in the media. I feel like it's a it's a major concern for uh, the spirit of Eureka and IPAN. You know, another group that Shirley is a part of. That, that are, and you were saying at the start of this interview that, that, that the possibility of a, of a great power conflict appears very high right now. Why would that be in US uh, interests? It's increased. It, look, it's, it, it's increased. It's not very... I mean, the, the, the possibility is, of course, increasing, yes. Um, the, going back to what's uh, motivating uh, the, the standoff weapons, um, in 2003, during the invasion of Iraq, it was a U.S. aircraft carrier that fired 96 cruise missiles, tomahawks, uh, against Iraqi coastal defenses uh, in four minutes. Um, uh, the Iranians took a look at this, and so did the Chinese, and they developed standoff capabilities. They, for example, proved they could destroy satellites. Um, they proved they could um, hit aircraft carriers and sink them and develop standoff capabilities. So this new missile uh, the purchase that we're talking about is designed to counter that. Um, the real threat of China is that it is able to stand up to intimidation. It's not a very pleasant state. It's, a totalitarian, it's an authoritarian government. Um, you know, people with uh, views of, of a more libertarian side would not, be, would not have a great time in China. Um, the United States remains the most free country democratically in terms of its political access, declassification in the world. Uh, probably in world history. Uh, China is, is authoritarian, but the, the external expression of the policies bears no resemblance to the internal domestic character. And that's a fact mm. that's been true since, say, Athens and Sparta. Um, mm. the, simply being democratic internally is no guarantee against being, not being war prone. Now, China is, is trying to do what it can to stand up uh, to intimidation. Um, it wants to ensure that the first island chain uh, which is the one uh, surrounding the South China Sea, uh, is controlled by itself, not by American allies. If you look at um, the coastline, there's um, you know 38,000 Americans uh, in, in military bases in Japan, in Okinawa. There's uh, uh, 28,000 in South Korea. Uh, and so it finds itself hemmed in um, by a, a wall of American allies. Its uh, military increase is just designed to stop itself being intimidated. And you consider the last time China fired a shot in anger. You know, it, uh, I think the Vietnam War of 79, 
is when it actually uh, fought. Um, most recent standoff with India uh, was with fists because both countries have issued orders to their troops not to use weaponry. Um, it's not an aggressive power uh, outside its own borders. Mm. It's kind of the reverse of but what you, you were saying we Sparta. Go ahead, James. Sorry. Do you think that this, um, you know, this rhetoric that we're seeing within Australia, you know, people like Clive Hamilton writing these, um, you know, books about the, you know, great China fear, uh, you know, all across most of mainstream media, we're led to believe that this threat of China. Do you think that that really is about strengthening the US alliance is to, you know, that you need to create uh, an enemy and, you know, looking at this um, great power conflict um, prism, you know, is certainly something that I think is worth analysing. But, you know, the, the people that are pushing this kind of agenda with and within and without, um, sorry, inside and outside the mm -hmm. government, that it's really about strengthening the US alliance and actually has, you know, as perhaps less to do with China itself? Uh, yeah, look, the, uh, the, there is a concern about foreign influence uh, in our government. And um, I don't believe the United States or Australia is lying when it says that the Chinese government is, is committing cyber espionage and stealing intellectual property from American companies. I don't believe that's, that's false. I believe they are, in fact, uh, doing that. And then furthermore, they'd be insane not to. Uh, every country that has developed has developed by not respecting intellectual property rights. Um, the United States, the United Kingdom, France and other imperial powers rose by totally disregarding um, intellectual property rights. And now they want to kick the ladder away by further reducing the policy space available uh, to China and other developing countries. But China's aim is that it wants to escape what's called the middle income trap. Okay? It doesn't want to remain the final stage export platform for firms located in other countries. It has the technological ambitions of a middle-income developing country and it wants to close the technological gap. Uh, and so a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the trade war, the tariff war, the, the, the ban on Huawei uh, is designed to, to keep China uh, in, uh, as, a, as an assembly area uh, for uh, Western corporations rather than have them have technology transfer. Uh, and, and that, that uh, thing is as old as... Uh, probably the 18th century, uh, when uh, the third world was prevented from developing um, in order to allow it to, uh, the West to simply get raw materials from them and perform the high value uh, stuff in their home countries. And th that's what it's about. Uh, I, don't, I, have, I have no doubt that China is, uh, is committing cyber espionage or trying to be an influence in Australia. Uh, they'd, be, they'd be crazy not to. Can I just make a comment on, the, um, on that as well? I know we're a little bit off maybe a little bit off topic, but um, is with um, um, the, 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 um, the cyber rattling by the Americans and, and revving up the anti-China um, rhetoric and um, the military build-up, wanting um, its allies to build up the military and assist it in the uh, containing China, isn't that also driven that China economically is expanding. So the, the road and belt, or is it belt and road, um, is really intruding into some of the economic, um, econo uh, economic interests that up to now America has, has, has maintained. So China is also expanding and wants to capture new markets, what it has capital that it wants to invest in, in, in other countries. So, um, uh, and, and I mean, reality is that China has has a you know a, 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 a very wealthy capitalist class who 
do have interest in, in expansion, just like America has um, the, the big capitalist class that, that you know you've got the um, you've got the likes of you know Exxon Mobil. I mean, they, they're the biggest company. But um, but this conflict is also driven by by Chinese or America's response. The China response is also driven by. Chinese economic expansion um, into what usually have been in the past America's spheres of influence, and I think that that was really I was thinking that was really um, exemplified with this viso of with um, the attack that the Andrews government came under for signing up with the Belt and Road, and um, I was talking to one last year I was talking to one of the MPs, Labor MPs in the Andrews government, and asked well why they're signing up. Um, with you know, with the Belt and Road, well, what is the reason? when there's so much opposition to it um, within the you know the, the powers that be. And they said, um, you know, they're offering better cap terms of investment. So, um, so you know, there's so we've got the Chinese interests there who want to take you know get a foothold in in. Australia's economy, Australia's only a small fish building. But also up to now, Australia's been has been dominant, had dominant investment in Australia from the US or before that Britain and France. So there are those economic rivalries between the two powers that also increasing that you know the conflict for war, which in some some ways reflects the you know the period before the First World War as well. Conflict between the big powers. Anyway, there's a lot in in that. You know, there's a whole lot of other stuff about the the economic and the road and belt. Yeah, there's a lot. They were covered a lot. People want to find out more. They yeah. could go to the forum. They could. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, I think, yeah, we're coming to the end of the show, unfortunately, but I think this has been a really great discussion and it's always great to speak to Clinton and Shirley, um, you know, whenever we can. And I think that there's a lot of people out there that um, we said that would be interested in engaging in these kind of discussions. And I think that it's, uh, you know, I think for lots of people that these are discussions that really need to be had. And unfortunately, there aren't enough people that are, you know, debating these things in this kind of um, intellectual space, I think, you know, saying that mm. we are concerned about the US influence and, you know, and, and China's influence on, on Australian foreign policy. It's a really, really important discussion that, um, you know, more and more people need to be involved in. So if they want to get along to the forum um, via Zoom this Saturday, July 4th from 4pm, and we'll send out the link to people as well um, through our social media channels. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Clinton and Shirley for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's uh, uh, you guys are always very well prepared. Thank you. And Shirley, thanks heaps for coming on. Do you want to just give us a few details about the other guests on the forum this coming Saturday? Okay, thank you, Jackson. Um, the other two guests are Margie, um, Margie Beavers. Margie is a, a, a general um, practitioner. She's a doctor. She's with the Medical Association for Prevention of War and very much involved in the, the military spending versus um, and the contrast spending on public health and the public education. And the third speaker is um, Dennis McNamara. Dennis is a CFMEU delegate in New South Wales. So thank, thank you, thank you, Jackson. 
<laughs> Thanks, Shirley. It's a real pleasure. And I reckon we'll talk again soon. I'm your masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Here that hide behind walls. Here that hide behind discs. I just don't want you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.